Hello and welcome to Coach's Corner. I'm Coach Andrew Porritz from Ingenuity Coaching. I help people discover and fulfill their passions and greatness. My mission is to inspire and challenge you to dream big dreams and with my coaching help you to manifest those dreams into reality. You can visit my website at myfuturecoach.com and follow me on Twitter at Coach Andrew. If you're listening live and you have a question, the phone number here is 646-929-2893. You'll be able to listen to the show on the phone, and if you press the number 1, I'll know you have a question. We also have a live chat room right on the show page where you can feel free to join in. My guest tonight is Alana Rubin Free, who works internationally as a playwright, director, and educator developing the Eden Plays and other theater work. Alana was one of the founding editors of the literary journal The Mom Egg and was the executive producer of the narrative documentary The Last Stand. Alana began her career performing monologues and poetry in downtown New York at various venues, as well as at universities, festivals, and conferences. Alana is currently planning to create the first Women's International Theater Festival in Israel. You can learn more about Alana at beginneratlife.com. Alana, are you with me? Yes. Hi, Andrew. Hello. Great to have you here on Coach's Corner. Thank you for inviting me. I'm very honored to be on your show. Oh, as you should be, really. It's an incredible honor. A very few, very few people have received this honor in this world, and there's a long, long waiting list. I know. I know. Out the door. Thank it's you an for amazing thing. And here we are. By the way, tonight is uh, the, the night of the Tony Awards, and so I, I thank you if you're listening tonight instead of watching the Tony Awards. Um, and uh, if you're not watching the Tony Awards, you probably don't care that much, and here you are with me on Coach's Corner, so I'm very excited. Well, I'm very interested in inspiring other people to write theater and to tell their stories and to tell their truth and to mine their lives for the gold in it. And I think that theater can be really healing, and that's what I'm into. I'm into sharing with people uh, the tools that I gained along the way to heal myself through theater mm-hmm. and writing, and I'm interested in other women sharing their stories with me. So let's uh, start at the beginning. Uh, how did you uh, start with writing? What What was your initial um, uh, original motivating force? I had to write to live. I really came to the conclusion that if I didn't write, there was the potential I would be, like, wiped off the face of the earth. Like, it just felt that imperative for me. Well, um, tell me more about that. Well, I tried to fight the muses, and I tried to fight putting on paper what I was hearing, and the more I fought it, actually the sicker I became to the point where I realized I had no choice. I had to write. And I feel like I still have to write. I feel like, you know, I must tell stories. I must share with people stories. And Mm -hmm. the more I write, the healthier I am. That's the truth. I feel it frees me. It frees others. It brings me into community. It brings me into connection with myself. It brings me into connection with life. It, It just brings me into harmony. And because writing has been such a force for healing in my life, that's why I'm so passionate about inspiring others to write in their lives and giving them a platform or a stage or a page to write on. You know, it was so exciting with the Mom Egg when we got to, you know, get so many various voices of different women submitting, mm-hmm. and then later we would do poetry readings and invite them on stage. And the rooms were just electrifying. It was electrifying to hear so many different kinds of women from so many different backgrounds sharing in poetry or prose or essay or comedy. 
you know, vignettes of their life and hear them artistically express themselves. It, I mean, it really feels revolutionary. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you know, you, these are women who are also mothers. They're mothers who are artists. And, mm-hmm. you know, before our generation, it really wasn't common to be both an artist and a mother, to be a writer and a mother. Very few mm-hmm. women writers were mothers. Very few women artists were mothers. And, you know, we're looking at changing that, saying you can be a mother and you can be a writer. You can be a mother and you can be an artist and a photographer and mm-hmm. work in theater. It's not an either-or choice. It's never been either-or right. for men, and it doesn't need to be either-or for women. So when, when were you doing this, uh, these performances? When were these well, I things started happening? in 2002 was the first time I um, actually performed a monologue on stage. It was at the cutting room in New York City, and mm-hmm. actually my knees were like trembling under my skirt. I remember being on stage, thank God, wearing a skirt below my knees, and my knees literally trembling. Like I, mm-hmm. was, <laughs> I thought there was a chance they might buckle from under me. I was so nervous. Um, so I always have fond memories of the cutting room. I just... You know, I wouldn't say the room was spinning while I was reading, but my knees were definitely shaking enough that <laughs> it was hard that, to keep when, my balance. How is it, to, like now, today, all these years later, do you, do you, are you still nervous when you do that? You know, yes and no. You know, I, I'm very humble in the sense that, I mean, it's funny to say humble, but I mean, like, I don't really control the muses that guide me. I don't control my artistic flow so you're always sort of at the mercy of the energies that infuse Mm -hmm. you as an artist so you know i trust them more and more and i trust myself more and more and the relationship between me and my art is much healthier than it's ever been so i can rely on i don't know i just feel i can rely on myself and rely on the forces that inspire me to speak and share so no, I'm not as nervous. I mean, I, I feel now um, with experience and time, I just, I enjoy sharing with others. It, it's different. It's, I, I, don't, mm-hmm. I think it's the judgment, the fear of the judgment is not as strong, I think, as I, you know, take that sort of projection off the audience that they're all sitting out there taking notes and judging me and scoring me and, you know, Mm -hmm. wanting to get the hook and the gong and pull me off stage as I, you know, withdraw that projection. I'm able to be there more freely and more comfortably. Now, uh, by the way, how long would one of your performances be about? I'm trying to get a sense of it. Well, no, when I started, you know, in 2002, the very first performance was probably like three or four minutes on stage Mm -hmm. at Mama Palooza, you know, where I would do a monologue. Maybe it was five or six minutes. Um, You know, it was -hmm. was probably a three- or four-page monologue. And then, so that was 2002, and then in 2003, I did another, like, say, five- or six-minute monologue. And then a few months later, I did about a 45-minute one-woman show. So I took a big leap. Right. Um, and I wrote a solo performance piece called Beginner at Life that I made a commitment to develop in front of audiences live, performing it myself. And I did that because, again, not only is writing healing, but performing is healing. You know, embodying your words, embodying your story, embodying your feelings, like acting and telling your story, performance can be incredibly empowering. And that's why I want to create more opportunities for women to share the stage and share their stories from, you know, an embodied place. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want women who have an, um, like a passion for acting to have the opportunity to tell their own stories or tell stories that are meaningful to them. You know that elevate them and in no way degrade them. 
But so I, I have like a, like a two-part short question. But the first thing that you could remember writing, and the first thing that you could remember saying, this is I, this is something I'd like to present. Hmm. And if they're the same thing, that would be amazing. But usually it's not. Wow. Well, I mean, you. when I was a kid, I did a lot of public speaking. I mean, I remember mm-hmm. in sixth grade writing a speech on acid rain and then developing that speech for the next three years. Every time I had to do an oratory mm. competition, grade six, seven, eight, and nine, I gave a more and more sort of in-depth, enhanced speech on acid rain. So, and, you know, it was funny, you know, when I was in, I think, seventh, eighth grade, I was, you know, on stage in a competition, and I lost all the cue cards, so I had to go on stage and wing it. And I remember really doing well winging it, and mm-hmm. having lost the cue cards, I felt like the the presentation was actually better. And having that memory gave me a lot of confidence in performing the solo performance piece and knowing that, you know, I could rely on my memory and I, you know, you know could pull off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, but I mean, that, that's going back to, you know, middle school. Sure. You know, when I remember feeling, but, you know, th- th- those are important memories. When you, you sense your own power of communication, you sense that you can move a room, you sense that you can inspire people to action, you can inform people. I mean, I mean, we're talking the 80s, you know, when acid rain was first being uncovered. You know, in Canada, we were seeing right. fish floating dead on lakes, and we were wondering what was <clears throat> causing it. So, you know, um, and that concerned me as a kid, of course. <laughs> it still concerns of course. me. Not, you know, not enough has been done. But. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and what I would was say when that. You first, uh, you know, and what was your first piece when you, when you started as an adult? Right, so my first, it's so funny. I think it was called, it wasn't Virgin Mum and Still Waiting. I feel like that was it. I think it was called Virgin Mum and Still Waiting. Virgin and, Mum um, or Mom? It was Virgin. Well, I'm, I have that British accent, M U M, in America ah. they say Mom, M O M. But um, yeah, I think the first piece I did was called Virgin. Yeah, it was Virgin Mum and Still Waiting. Mm. And um, and you know, this was all about a woman's definition of sex versus a man's definition of sex. And in fact, you could have had intercourse, you could have become a mother, you know, and still not feel you've been fully sexually initiated as a woman. And of course, that happens all over the place all the time. But I wanted to comment on that. I wanted to talk about that. I'm like really mm-hmm. interested in talking about the differences between a woman's experience and perception of relationship and relationships and sexuality than a male perspective. You know, because women tend, you know, in the generation I was raised, a lot of our ideas were formed from a male point of view, the male point of view dominated in the media. And so I'm very interested in bringing out more of a feminine point of view on everything. You know, that I'm very passionate about that. I wouldn't even call it feminism as much as I would mm-hmm. just call it a feminine perspective. So... And, yeah, and I see I mean, from everything you're doing, it's like everything is about uh, you know, about women. You want women performers. So are you sort of like uh, like uh, sort of making up for all the uh, domination so by men? Twenty percent of women's plays get put on stage. There's mm-hmm. no 
equity currently between the number of women who get their plays produced and the number of men who get their plays produced. Even though we know probably more women are writing plays than men, less women get their plays produced than men by far. It's not even close to 50%. I was at the Playwrights Conference um, in Maryland where Julia Jordan like started crying on stage talking about how unfair it was. You know, I'm quite sure she was a graduate of Juilliard, and the male classmates right. who graduated with her had far more productions than the women. And, you know, I chose not to get involved in those politics at all because I wanted, maybe naively, to just go forward from my own, you know, sort of outside of the system. I was outside the system. I am outside the system, so I decided you know, that maybe those problems wouldn't be mine. I'd go about it in a circuitous way. But the fact of the matter is, you know, I care. I care about having women's voices heard and women's stories put on stage. And mm -hmm. if women don't fight for it, men aren't. That's the facts. Those are the facts. Sure. If women don't fight to have women's stories put on stage, you know, it's not likely men were. And what happens is I see it all the time because theater is so collaborative, you know, as a woman, when I need to find a costume designer, a lighting designer, a stage manager, I'm more apt to pick up the phone and call a woman than a man because there's just a natural camaraderie or comfort with me talking to a woman about clothes or talking to a woman about the mm -hmm. lights. or talking. Right. And so I can only imagine the same thing happens between men, that when a mm. man is directing a show and he needs to get a lighting designer, he's going to think of a man he's friends with. Or when he needs a costume designer, he's going to think of a man he's friends with. And even if, you know, it's not, it's not even about skill, because theater is so much about relationship. It's so much about, you know, who you get along with and who you want to spend time with. And, you know, so I, I'm really interested in, you know, seeing more women in the role of director, more women, you know, just getting getting their work seen. I, I can't help it. I'm just passionate about. Good. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. By the way, every yeah. so often I I hear that little telltale sign that you're from Canada. Yeah, the about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Twenty years in New York hasn't dulled it yet. <laughs> no, not yet, eh? <laughs> eh? No, I mean, we never. Yeah, I eh. never had that, eh? Actually. Yeah, actually, I've, I've not heard that from. That's you an yet, Ontario but I thing. I'm from New Brunswick. I'm from the East Coast. It's a little uh, bit more from Ontario. Okay. Um, but anyway. So okay, so very cool. So, uh, what would you say is the like? What's the direction that's going on right now in the area that you're in, in the theater? You mean personally? You know, what am no, I working what, on? What are you observing in the, in the type of storytelling that you're doing? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, I'm really excited to possibly go over to Italy um, in July to this crisis art festival that's looking at how theater work can be more... Uh, directed towards the current global crisis around how much violence we're seeing and war and famine and, you mm -hmm. know, inflation and economic, you know, issues. And, you know, I, I would like to say that what I'm seeing is more theater artists are interested in um, – they're interested in telling stories about what's currently going on that have meaning and inspire people and awaken people to political and social issues. I mean, I'm a person actually who's m kind of more interested in the personal issues and the personal crisis. I like to write mm -hmm. about mental health mm -hmm. and, you know, family issues. That's, that's a little 
a little slightly more interesting to me, but as you can hear, like even as a kid, I cared about the environment with acid rain. I organized human rights protests. It's not like I... I've always cared about the larger issues, and I think more artists today are. I think there are more stories that are going to be told about the larger issues. So, you know, that could possibly be a trend. I hope it's a trend. So I don't know if I'm the best person to comment on that because I live in New York City, and, you know, New York's dominated by Broadway. So, you know, I love that they put Next to Normal on Broadway that was about bipolar and, you Mm -hmm. know, family trauma, you know, the loss of a child. Um, but, you know, we're dominated by Broadway in New York, so I don't know mm-hmm. how, um, you know, uh, much that reflects the larger global theater world. So w- would you describe uh, your your style, would you say, or, or yourself as uh, more serious than most? That's an interesting question. I, that's a really interesting question. I think, you know, most people who know me would say I take life pretty seriously, you know, and that that probably comes out of studying so much theology and Judaism in my mm-hmm. 20s is that, you know, life is a gift. It's a blessing no matter how hard it is, no matter what your personal struggles, you know, you're here for a reason, for a purpose, and, you know, I'm sure there's lots of people who look at me and think I waste a lot of time. <laughs> you Why know, for do you somebody who holds life to be precious. But um no, I I think we're here to help each other. I mm-hmm. I actually have a very non-competitive view to the human experiment. I think we are all here to teach each other, help each other, share with each other. I love what I see going on in like kind of this, I don't know if you want to call it the evolutionary spiritual community where you know people talk about being on their on their growing edge and as soon as they discover and learn something about how to develop themselves or be more awakened or be more conscious they quickly turn it over and share it in a very transparent way with others right. and i think that's fabulous i love the new quote unquote transparency and humility that is in this you know kind of new spiritual ethos um, I don't know. Am I more serious than others? Yeah, you know, that's my nature. I, I've always mm-hmm. taken the world seriously and life seriously. You know, I think I, I like this planet in some ways. I don't love it, but I like it. There's good well, things. It's the only one we got, planet. so yeah. <laughs> you got to like For it. For now, bit, yeah. Right? I mean, you know, I'm really into nature. I think it happens mm-hmm. to be a particularly beautiful planet. I think some of the food is spectacular. I'd like to see, you know, the food supply continue to be, you know, healthy and available to us as a species. You know, these things are important. Survival is important, you mm-hmm. know? No, the food. The food. I, don't know. I, don't, I can't imagine I'm saying anything that your other guests don't say. Do you have any no. guests that say survival is not important? <laughs> you know, we have, of course, we have to survive. But it's like yeah, I, I'm I mean, more interested in thriving source, than food, merely surviving. Food source isn't important, but uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, okay. you know, as a playwright, you kind of have to see the humor in it, too, that, you know, it's it's kind of funny that we're destroying our home and our planet. And I think that stems a lot from self-hatred. I think mm-hmm. there is a self-destructive streak in all of us. I mean, I've had to combat my self-destructive streak, and, you know, we all do. And I think the more we take responsibility for it, the less we'll channel it outwards against nature and right. against others. But say, speaking of uh, funny, so uh, the the counterpart of uh, of of serious, of course, is funny, and um, I'm wondering where you are in the, on the on the humor scale when it comes to writing. 
Well, most people call my work witty. It's witty. It's mm-hmm. clever. I mean, there are some laughs in it. I, you know, it, it's you, yeah. I mean, it's definitely not heavy drama by mm-hmm. any stretch. It's funny. I mean, each play seems to get funnier and funnier. That's for sure. I mean, I have God as a character in my third play, and you know, he's looking for a wife. He's speed dating. He's you know, on the website goddess.com, looking for his new <laughs> wife. I mean, we've got to bring back the divine feminine, and he he's sure. missing his partner. So, yeah, I've got God there, and he's a character. I mean, the actor who plays him just loves, he's very comedic. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's fun. We have fun. <laughs> well, it has to be, you know, a tough uh, role He's like to wooing fill. Sophia. <laughs> he's like trying to, you know, get his ex-wife mm-hmm. back. <laughs> Wait, ex-wife? Yeah, God's ex-wife. He's God has an ex-wife. Oh, okay. I think I just heard some <laughs> yeah, that's lightning. White fire, uh, black fire. What? I think I. I think I just heard some lightning in the background there. Uh, good. <laughs> yeah. Things <laughs> flying past the window. Very scary. Thunderous applause. Thunderous. No applause. Yeah. God, that's Thunderous great. applause. Thunderous applause. Okay. So, um, you would you had mentioned to me. Um, that, uh, you know, a lot of people know about uh, that there's a program called Birthright that brings young people to Israel. And I I don't even know if everybody, a lot of Jewish people don't even know about this, but I certainly did not know about it when I was uh, uh, eligible for it. Um, But you had told me that you would like to see something similar for artists. I'd like to hear more about that. Well, I think that artists have a lot of power in society in terms of communicating messages. And and not only that, artists um, are very networked in with universities and industry, and it's important that artists have access to Israel, both for their own, you know, edification and growth as an artist, because I think Israel is a very vibrant, creative country with fabulous things happening now in the artistic community. Mm -hmm. So certainly it would enrich the artists to go there, but also it would enlighten artists that a lot of what's going on, you know, with this bullying against Israel is completely based on ignorance of the situation, completely you know, to some part based on anti-Semitism. And a lot of the artists I know who aren't Jewish or even are Jewish but ill-informed, I truly do not consider in the least anti-Semitic or even desiring to be anti-Zionist. However, there is so much negative information and Mm. misinformation circulating about Israel. I think it's imperative, imperative that artists be brought to Israel as much as it's imperative that, you know, young Jewish people be brought to Israel. So, yes, I would like to see foundations set up a program um, to bring artists to Israel, 100%, and artists across all mediums, you know, photographers, writers, filmmakers, poets. Mm-hmm. So if, if you, you were, know, um, if you I, were designing you know, Darren, this... I just, yeah, pardon me? I said if you, were, if you were, like, magically in charge of this, what would it look like? Well, certainly while they're over there, there'd be an opportunity for some cross-fertilization between Israeli artists and, you know, international artists. And then there'd be an opportunity for the artists amongst themselves to collaborate on on some project or, you mm-hmm. know, to have discussions and workshops. But definitely tour the country. I mean, it's a fantastically small country. You can cover it top to bottom you know, almost in a day, you know, I think it's, it's you know, I went from Tel Aviv up to Naharia, which is this below Lebanon in an hour and 45 minutes. Really? So 
on the train. Yeah, they have a new train there. So um, you can easily take artists all over the country within, you know, three or four days. So they'll definitely be touring. I mean, I would let you know, I would take them over if, you know, if it's safe to the West Bank and Bethlehem and Jericho and Nablus and, you know, let them see, you know, Nazareth, which is, you know, within Israel proper. But, you know, I'd let them see the situation with their own eyes, Mm -hmm. you know, and really understand that it's a highly civilized country. It's, you know, it's democratic. There's, you know, there are media outlets that are very free, free media. You know, it's not a perfect society. It's not a perfect country. It's struggling with everything that every other democratic country has to struggle with, but perhaps more intensely and under threat of war and, you know, under the threat of actually atom- you know, atomic nuclear war from Iran, which is, when you're in Israel, shockingly, I have to admit there are a lot of people who do. I mean, I don't know why I say shockingly. I guess because I have, I work out of sort of a, a, a ability to sort of block things that are too scary for me, but a lot of people in Israel can't block out the threat of Iran. It's very real for them. Um, they well, take you know, it very I've never, seriously. Um, I've never been to Israel, so I, I, I don't really have a, a concept of, of what it looks like or how it feels. Uh, but I will tell you that you know, uh, I, I have a trepidation when I think about it. And you shouldn't. You shouldn't have an iota of trepidation. No one should have an iota of trepidation. That is completely, completely from the media. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, the same way they, they spew reasons to be fearful of living right here in America. Right. They spew reasons to be fearful of visiting Israel, and there's no reason to be fearful. Mm-hmm. I've, been going, I've been to Israel well over 20 times. I started going in 1986. Uh, you know, I actually have lost track of how many times I've been there, and, you know, I've never, ever, ever encountered anything remotely close to dangerous, nothing. I can't even think of one incident where I'd say I was scared. <laughs> and I'm, I can't. I can't think of one time mm-hmm. I was in Israel where I'd say I was scared. Now, I've never been there during a time of war. And, you know, I know that my friends who sadly have had to be there, you know, just even recently in November when, you know, the missiles were fa- missiles were falling, falling from right. Gaza or people who were there during the Gulf War back in, I think, 90, you know, 91. Yeah, it was scary. Um, you know, and obviously back in the earlier wars it was scary. But I myself have never been there during a time of war. So, but when you're there during a time of relative peace, um, it's fine. Well, like I know, like for example, I'm a New Yorker, lived here pretty much all my life. I live in Manhattan, and I ride a bicycle in Manhattan. (laughs) And a lot of people who uh, are not, uh, even people who are here who don't ride a bicycle, but certainly people who are not from New York, uh, their concept of what New York is is pretty much from movies. Correct. Uh, Either either the good version if like you've seen the Woody Allen version of New York which is very romanticized or you've seen you know Fort Apache the Bronx and you think that that's what we live in um uh and and you think that the the cab drivers you see in the movies are the cab drivers you see in actual <laughs> right, New York right, right. uh uh not to mention that the checker cabs no that no longer exist uh and certainly people think like you you have to be how how could you live there and how could you ride a bicycle in in uh, you must be out of you must be crazy to do this right. or are you aren't you putting your life in your hands on a daily basis and 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 i know from being here that it's perfectly sane to do what i do right and i think you've I drawn think a about, perfect analogy i think that is yeah. a perfect analogy to israel because i've also lived in new york 20 years 
and I feel incredibly safe here. I've also never encountered anything remotely dangerous while living in New York, thank God. You know, and, you know, but there is a perception out there that New York is a dangerous city. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I would say that the same would be true for Israel. I'm not saying there, look, there have been terrorist attacks in Israel, of course, you know, and yes. there are real threats, but we just witnessed a terrorist attack in Boston. I mean, who would have thought that? I mean, there was recently a terrorist attack in London. Like, we're living in a very volatile wor- world, and I'd have to say I feel sometimes in Israel they're much more equipped, much more alert. Um, to deal with those threats than pretty much any other country in the world. So I genuinely tend to feel safer there. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, this is this is the I sleep better in Israel usually than anywhere else. So, yeah. Well, that's, <laughs> so a, that's an interesting idea. What? Well, that's interesting. I mean, uh, well, in New York, you have so much noise. So, so what yeah. is it, what is it like to? Could you put me in there? Put me in. Put me in. Like when you? Where do you typically go when you're in Israel? Oh my God. <laughs> um, well, I happen to have a bit of a passion for praying. I love to pray, and I happen to like, you know, still like to pray at mm-hmm. the wall in Jerusalem. And okay. so I would have to say I, I do try to devote some significant amount of time to be able to just hang out there and meditate mm-hmm. and listen to my higher guidance and talk to the, you know, the forces that seem to guide my life and Mm -hmm. pray. I mean, look, this last time, you know, look, I felt like I genuinely was praying for my enemies. I genuinely was praying that Syria should know peace and Hezbollah should know peace and Turkey should know peace and Iran should know peace. I mean, like, until our enemies know peace, will Israel know peace? So I... Right. You know, I really, I you know, and I, I prayed for the healing for not just the Jewish people who have been through so much trauma, you know, centuries of trauma, but praying for all humanity who's been through centuries of trauma and continue to be traumatized. So there's there's plenty to pray for beyond just myself and my friends who are mm-hmm. ill and, you know, people I love and, you know, the fulfillment of my own creative vision and the fulfillment of my own creative aspirations you know i i pray for guidance how do i do what i want to do on the planet so so yes i love jerusalem i'm passionate about jerusalem if someone comes to my apartment they're going to see you know pictures of jerusalem i love it Mm -hmm. and you know this was the first time i really spent significant time in tel aviv i did work there once but i lived in like a suburb Petah Tikva at the time I, li- I worked there. So, And I loved hanging out in Tel Aviv. It was great. <laughs> I loved mm-hmm. it. The beach is gorgeous. You know, you're on the Mediterranean. I also have a, a, you know, a passion for the Dead Sea. Not everyone does, but I find it, like, breathtakingly beautiful to be, like, floating in the Dead Sea and looking up mm-hmm. at the desert. I love the desert. I've always loved the desert. And I lived for about six months in Arad, which is in the desert. And I, I find it you know, beautiful. And, you know, growing up in Canada, we don't have a desert in Canada. So, you know, it felt very foreign and exotic to me. And um, and beautiful. I love it. I love it. Have you I ever really... been through the desert on a horse with no name? Uh, I've been on horses, and I've forgotten their names. Okay, that's close enough. <laughs> but they probably had a name, and I just forgot it. That's a song, in case you didn't get it. I know. I think I know. Okay. That's America. <laughs> yes, that is correct. <laughs> yes, tell her what she won, Bob. Yeah, I just uh, couldn't. I picture I, that. I, I told you before the mind. show not to try to trip me up on trivia. <laughs> <laughs> I can't help myself. <laughs> I know. I could tell. I could. <laughs> I my mind just goes in all kinds of but directions. But no, I mean, obviously, my interest is in you know, 
you know, bringing storytellers to Jerusalem or Tel Aviv and having women share their stories with each other and having also people from Israel hear the stories of women from around the world. Because in a way, you know, although there are Israelis who travel a lot, there are other Israelis who don't, you know, get to see a lot of foreign theater at all. And so it's a way of connecting Israel with the rest of the world at a time where there are really forces that continually try to isolate Israel and so unnecessarily, so unfairly. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, so if there's anything in my power to help Israel be more integrated in all ways with the rest of the world, I mean, I would like to work on, you know, towards that end and obviously continue to work on my own theater. I mean, I, you know, have these three plays, the Eden plays, that I'm extremely excited to share with audiences wherever, you know, they're wherever I can. Um, and so I'll be working as well on trying to get productions up in Toronto, Sydney, mm-hmm. may- maybe Tel Aviv. You know, it would be great to get them up in New York. Um, I'd love to see Beginner at Life tour around the U.S. and Canada. You know, there's still a lot that I have yet to do that I would love to do. You know, there's, you know, in terms of developing more of an audience for the work and letting people have the full experience of it. So, you know, a lot of what I have to do now is try to, you know, raise money and write grant proposals and find people who believe in my visions and, and what I'm trying to do and cultivate, you know, investors. Yes. <laughs> you know, that's kind of um, – but, you know, I believe there is a lot of money out there. There are a lot of people who need to find worthy causes to contribute to. So I'm hoping some of the visions that I'm holding will be considered worthy. So, yeah. <laughs> so tell me about... Uh, any advice because, on that, Andrew? Do you have any advice? <laughs> any advice for which part? Uh, how, how, you know, I don't know. How, how to, to attract fulfill investors? our creative aspirations, how to fulfill our creative visions. Well, that's a that's like, that, that's a, that's called a coaching session, so I'm sure we, I'm <laughs> happy to have one with you. Okay. Um, do you but, do, you do uh, that on air? <laughs> well, that, I, I could... <laughs> No, okay, it's all right. <laughs> if that's what you like to do, we would we could do that, but I, I'd really just rather talk about what you're up to. Okay. Um, so for, for, first of all, you have this thing called the – you were talking to me about the beginner at life, and I'd like to hear more about that and and uh, the uh, the festival that it's going to be at. Yeah, so um, in 2004, I started developing this solo performance piece called Beginner at Life. And a woman goes into a yoga class on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, and she discovers from the yoga teacher that she's disconnected from her body. And she doesn't know exactly what does that mean to be disconnected from her body. You know, like basically she's living from her neck up inside her head, the yoga teacher says. So Mm -hmm. she's wondering, has she even fully incarnated? Has she incarnated into this life? And she decides to go on a complete, you know, committed intellectual and spiritual search into what could be the potential causes of this disconnection from her body. Right. So as she um, she begins her search back in the book of Genesis, and she looks at the story um, of how God created the world, light and dark, you know, light is good, dark, mm-hmm. God doesn't say anything after he creates night, so, you know, what do we do with the darkness, the darkness inside us, the darkness inside life? And then there's this fabulous story in the Talmud about how when we're in the womb, there are angels that are teaching us everything we need to know for this lifetime. You know, they're giving us the game plan, the rule book, what Jews call Torah, 
and they can see from one end of the universe to the other. They can perceive reality in its truest form. But then, just as their head emerges from the from you know from the birth canal, another angel flies up and hits them right above the lip, mm-hmm. and we forget everything. We all just seem to forget everything. There might be a slight imprint on our you know unconscious somewhere, but generally we feel like we're on the planet and we don't really know what to do, where to go. We're innocent, and. Um, you know, so this character is very curious about the angel that hit her. She's curious because she thinks perhaps this angel deleted the wrong files because it seems like everyone else on the planet knows where they're going, what they're doing, how to get there, and she's just a little bit lost. And so she starts to think back on her relationship to her body, and that really it wasn't until she started contemplating her sexuality that she really thought about her body. And so she goes back and reflects on the journey of her first sexual encounter and, you know, how in many ways it was unsatisfying as it is for many women. You know, many women don't find their first sexual encounter particularly satisfying and, Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, goes on to look at her relationship to food and how her relationship to food is also not particularly satisfying. And, you know, she ends up losing interest in food altogether and becomes anorexic. And so then there becomes this sort of metaphorical part of the play around this idea of learning how to really accept your human needs and wants and be able to ask for what you want and need and know sometimes what you're trying to say that you don't have the courage to say through various pathologies. You know, in her case, the pathology is not eating. So what is it that she's trying to say through her food that she can't say with her words? Mm-hmm. And in the case of this character, what she can't seem to say with her words that she's trying to say with her food is that she feels she deserves and wants to have her life for herself and to live her life the way she wants to live it on her own terms according to her own values. And to her, as a young mother, that feels very bold to say, very countercultural and very frightening because there could be consequences to that position. And so then from there she contemplates um, her marriage and she starts thinking about what's going on in her marriage and is she being validated and seen and heard and in what ways does she feel discounted and not completely um, able to express what she wants and needs and is she sort of subsuming her wants and desires for her husband. And then there's a divorce, and then there's, in the end, exploration of sex after marriage. Mm-hmm. You know, what does that look like? And so that's Beginner at Life. That's the play. I just kind nice. of walked you through a lot of the script. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Saved me all this, all this time. I, I just heard the whole show. I'm just kidding. Well, you know, the, the you know because of my background studying uh-huh. um mm-hmm biblical text, I feel like the language of the script is actually very layered, so when the audience is there and they hear the text, it's mm-hmm. not so much about the story, but the right. vocabulary and the words and the structuring of the sentences that brings the transformation. It's a quite a powerful experience for audience to kind of... For It's a powerful experience for me. I'm not... I'm still kind of riveted every time I see the show perform, to be honest. I'm not over it. It still That's affects great. me deeply. It affects everyone. It's a very affecting piece of work. So to be honest, it's like a kind of medicine I give out sparingly. I would love more people to see it, but I don't push it. You know, I, I it's sort of a show that's been, 
you know, it's more through attraction. <laughs> if well, someone you wants know, you it, just you know. uh, gave me a really good uh, 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 place to do a uh, segue, uh, which is art as complementary medicine. Mm. Yeah, it's my <laughs> well, right. I mean, you know, from my own experience working with other women who. Mm-hmm. Um, come to me and share with me their stories and their works in progress, you know, I'm mesmerized at how we're both so deeply healed in the sharing of their stories. You know, I just had a woman call me and talk to me about the experience of having a brother who's severely bipolar and relatives who have Alzheimer's. And, Mm -hmm. you know, she's working on a character, a famous movie star who suffered with Alzheimer's. And, you know, just in the sharing of her script and where it is and the stories, you know, I learned so much. I learned so much about Alzheimer's. I learned so much about bipolar. I learned so much about how it impacts the family. I learned about treatment, you know, in a, in a non, sort of non-medical way, but in, a, I think, a much more effective way. And I feel like the second she gets her play on stage, an audience gets to, an audience gets to sit in the audience and see mm-hmm. this movie star who she's betraying. I don't want to give too much away, mm-hmm. um, but as soon as she, it's, it's a very well-known, you know, old classic movie star. As soon as she sees, the, they see this actress struggling with Alzheimer's and struggling with her addictions, it will have a very profound effect on audiences and be very healing. And I, I, you know, I, I know from, you know, what happens in my show. Like, I get letters and testimonials from audience members who will say, you know, after seeing your show, I immediately, you know, stop binging and purging. You know, I, I called a nutritionist. I reevaluated my life. I understood right. what I was dealing with in a whole new way that no one before had ever been able to explain to me. And, I mean, art is so powerful. Art by the is way, so were you talking powerful. about Rita Hayworth by any chance? Why did you think of Rita? Because uh, she was probably the first well-known Hollywood old-school star who, who was known for having Alzheimer's. Well, bingo. <laughs> I'm good. We're tied in the trivia game. That's right. <laughs> We're tied. 1-1. One, one. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Next. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Got to get up pretty early in the morning to get yeah, past yeah, old Okay. Coach well, I'll tell another story then. I'll tell you about the girl <laughs> who came and talked to me about having unfortunately suffered. I wouldn't call it date rape. I'd call it outright rape and how that impacted her and, you know, her story and where it took her and how long it took her to recover and the consequences on her life and, you know, to me, rape is like anorexia metaphor. You know, mm-hmm. they're, they're, it's not just a physical violent act. It's, you know, it happens in many ways on many levels to many people, you know, without ever being penetrated. So, you right. know, it was very powerful hearing her share her story and the impact. And it was healing for both of us psychologically. So, you know, I'm I'm always very happy when people can come and share with me their personal stories or their theater work and what they're you know working on and i i think it is complementary medicine you know i mean i right a hundred percent hundred percent well uh you know ha- uh where do you see like the healing that happens um well the mind and body are one 
They're absolutely okay. one. The cells that vibrate in our body, the cells that make up our body of consciousness, they have intelligence. There's energy in those cells. So when we change the mind of the cells, we change the health of the body. So if you can get into the mind or vibration of the cells, you will naturally affect the overall health and well-being of the body. So to me, psyche and body are one. It's like you know yourself from biking, how good you feel when you're done biking. And it's Mm -hmm. not just the endorphins. It's the whole integration of the mind and the body. It's, you know, you're healing your mind through your body. That's why yoga is so big now. So many people are are involved in yoga because they feel the impact not just on their body but their mind. And stories, interestingly, have a similar impact. There's energy in words. There's energies in art. You know, I like to go to the Met and sit in front of Rembrandt's self-portrait. I like to go to the Met and sit in front of a Van Gogh. There's energy in those paintings, and that energy elevates me. It can make me euphoric. It can make me, you know, I'm almost tempted to say ecstatic at times because the energy that comes out of great poetry, great paintings, great photographs Mm -hmm. change the mind of the body, changes the mind of the cells. It's, you know, think of great jazz music. I mean, think of great music. Jazz and music are, you know, great example of where all of a sudden, the whole vibration of your body, the whole energy within your body changes. Comedy, another great example. You know, mm-hmm. if you laugh, how that changes your whole being. I mean, I think we know more and more that, you know, the wholeness of, that we, like, unfortunately Western medicine has kind of compartmentalized everything. The arm is no longer connected to the leg, that's no longer connected right. to the liver, that's no longer connected to the eye. When in fact everything is truly connected. The arm is connected through certain, you know, bones to the leg, and the eye is connected to the brain through different, mm-hmm. you know, we're all, everything's connected. So, you know, it does make a difference. You know, anything you do to um, bring healing to one part of the body is naturally going to have positive impact on the rest of the body and the whole right. system. Well, you know, the uh, the uh, famous uh, story, I think it was Norman Cousins, who mm-hmm. uh, wrote about laughter being the best medicine, how he was able to heal himself from mm-hmm. like, dying, basically from a, a deadly disease, from laughter. Correct. And his, his friends just came by and just constantly read funny things to him and made until he laughed, and he healed. He be, he became cured of his disease. Yeah, I mean this is documented now. They have laughter yoga. I mean, Sarah mm-hmm. Rosenberg has comedy cures um, for sure. I mean, when someone makes me laugh, I thank them. I think I'm so happy to laugh. You know, and it's um, yeah, it's a gift. Laughter is a gift. It's a healing gift. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I mean, this is, I mean, whatever we do in life, it can be a vehicle for healing. You know, it doesn't just have to be theater. It doesn't just have to be art. This just happens to be, you know, the arena I work in. But I would like to think that we're all trying at this juncture, you know, of history to bring healing to whatever the areas we work on, you know, where right. we work. You know, whether mm-hmm. you're a lawyer, you're a bank teller, whatever you do, you know, just by merely smiling at a person, you can bring healing. You know, so, I mean, for me, I'm just trying to bring awareness to the to my particular arena, which is theater and writing and, um, 
but you know, everyone, wherever you are, whatever you do, you know, you can bring healing. Sure. So, now I'm going to like to ask you about two people that you mentioned to me. Oh. I bet you know who they are. I do. <laughs> and this way, if you, if you say their names, I won't have to mispronounce them. Okay. So I happened to mention to Andrew when we were talking <laughs> about some of my projects that I am writing a piece on Henrietta Sold and Bertha Pappenheim. But I don't want to give too much of it away because okay. it's such a great story and they're such great women. Mm-hmm. And... um they're really important feminists. Um, they both were born in the mid to late 1800s and died around, well, Bertha Pappenheim died, I think, 1937. Henry Sold died, I think, around 1945. I don't, you know, I should know their dates by heart, but it's around there, right. mid 20th okay. century. They both died. And um, so they actually met. <laughs> And I'm totally uh, excited to explore, whether through a short story or a theater piece, the conversation that ensued between them. As, um, you know, Henrietta Sold was one of the most important, if not the most important, next to Golda Meir, um, woman Zionist. Mm-hmm. And Bertha Pappenheim, incidentally, was anti-Zionist. And... Um, you know, I'm excited to explore their conversation, explore what their thinking was and who these women were. They're both fascinating women who are incredibly intellectual and literary and scholarly and changed, you know, um, were, were humanitarians and done tremendous social work. They both worked on behalf of women and children, Bertha Pappenheim primarily in Galicia, Poland, uh, Russia, um, you know, Germany, uh, mm-hmm. Western Europe, Eastern Europe, and uh, Henrietta Sold in Israel, at the time Palestine. And um, I don't know, I'm just, you know, Henrietta Sold saved 30,000 children from Europe, and Mother's Day in Israel falls on the day that Henrietta Sold passed away. Now, mm. neither of these women actually had children. Neither of these women actually were ever married. Um, they... Um, and Henrietta Sold suffered from an unrequited love. Bertha Pappenheim, you know, I'm interested to get a little bit more into the research, but you know, I, I, I you know, I'm not gonna, yeah, I don't. Um, it's okay. But no, neither were married. They both were ex- extraordinarily close with their mothers. And um, but I, I love finding really intellectual women, and they both. You know, I, I, they, I have yeah. somebody for you to write about. I just Who? this just came to me just now. This just said. Doo, 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 doo. I I had a great aunt, my grandmother's sister. Her name is Zipporah, and Zip, uh, and my grandmother and her sister they had like she had a, a lot of siblings, and they came from a town called Eshashuk, which is what is now part of Lithuania, but was in either Poland or Russia, depending on what year it was when they were there. And it was one of these towns that was completely massacred at the end of World War II. And thankfully, uh, you know, obviously my my grandparents are two people who did leave, but my 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 great aunt Sapora was like the she was the the probably the first to leave, and she c- came back several times to bang the drums to get people to leave. She saw this happening. She saw mm-hmm. what was what was happening, and she wanted to get people to leave. Mm-hmm. You know, she wasn't very well heard, and she was, by the way. Very well known in the theater in, uh, oh, wow. in there, so she was a theater person, wow. and um, 
there's a great book about this town called Once There Was a World, and there's also a uh, memorial, a permanent memorial at the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. about this uh, exhibit. There's actually a couple of rather large photos of, of uh, Zipporah in, uh, in that exhibit. Wow, wow. And she would be a very fascinating person to write about. And her, uh, she, you know, her children and great-grandchildren and great-grandchildren are all in Israel. Hmm. Well, you need to go over and visit them. You need Maybe. to go over and find your family in Israel. I, I, I'm like well, one of the Facebook, I do know I some of them at least. No family in Israel. It's very uh-huh. bizarre. <laughs> so you actually have family there. I have uh, a lot of family in Israel and friends in Israel, and I have people who well, maybe went to we school can get with who this artist exchange program up, and we can help get you some funding to go over there. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think it's really, really, really important that as many people as possible. I mean, I'd like to say everyone gets the opportunity to visit Israel in their lifetime. Mm-hmm. I think it's very important. I think it, you know, yeah, I believe in it. I just think it's a really interesting place. It's had great significant, you know, influence on the whole shaping of Western civilization. You know, oh, sure. And for not I don't know. I, lo- Judaism, I love being over there. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I think... Uh, yeah, your aunt sounds amazing, sounds fascinating. But I imagine it was also really painful to sort of see what was happening and, you know, kind of falling on deaf ears and people being afraid to make the change and afraid I to I mean, take she's the like, chick, you know, it's like being chicken little, but the sky really did fall. It did. Herzl said the earth is, was burning under their feet in Europe. You mm-hmm. know, he felt the earth burning under their feet. So I mean, this is right, one of those towns where they, they killed. This is one of those towns where they like they marched everybody into the woods and executed them, and they uh, they made the uh, chief rabbi of the town watch every last one being killed, and then they killed him. And uh, th- there was a, a handful of people, 27 people escaped, including a woman who, uh, uh, who was just a little kid who with her father, and he took with him, of all the things to take, uh, insisted on taking a package of photogra- uh, photographs, about 150 photographs uh, of people that he that they knew. And years and years later, she was just really fascinated by these photos because it turns out like everybody would send photos to their relatives in America. And she went on a mission to find other photos, and she wound up collecting some 6,000 wow. photographs wow. of that village, wow. including you know my my uh, my uncle uh, contributed a number of the photographs into that book and 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 all the all the pictures apparently there are copies of all those pictures in some in the archives like if you you can visit the photographs there but the exhibit is something like 30 blow up blow up uh, have you ever been to that museum yeah in washington correct that's what you're talking about yeah the Hall- washington yes, one. Many, yeah and yeah, there's, a, there's a it was called the tower of life and it's uh like a like you're walking, it's on two floors, and you basically it's like a it's like a walk walkway in the middle of two floors, and it's, it's surrounded by two two stories worth of photographs of people from that village. Yeah, I mean, like the fact that you're talking about one of the darkest periods of the 20th century. I mm-hmm. mean, I think that all of us, it's sort of incumbent of all of us, to really look at how we can take from that to bring the most light into the world. Like, how do yes. we compensate for that darkness by finding the greatest light? You know, and for me, light is in inspiration and in intelligence and in, I'm not going to just say reason, but like in whatever we can find that feels positive and whole and healing. And so for me, making art and 
being creative versus destructive. We all have a lot of dark emotions. Like that's that's how it is to be a human being. We all suffer from, you know, resentments and anger and bitterness and sadness. And the question is, what do you do with those feelings? Do you use them to be destructive or do you use them to be creative? And I feel very lucky that I continually find ways to use those feelings and channel channel those feelings into things that are creative. And um, and I, I, that's why I want to see more money go towards putting creative tools in people's hands, that there is money there for artists and money there for people to be more creative, um, because I think that makes the world a healthier place. I mean, it shows us what we are capable of human beings, like how we... Mm-hmm you know, like what our highest capability is. It's mind-boggling, you know, and you see that through art. Uh, You know, the same way people, when they watch the Olympics, you know, they see physically what people are capable of. Mm -hmm. Like, feel someone in art, you see what people are spiritually capable of and imaginatively capable of, and it's inspiring. And so I'm, you know, that's to me where the light is. The light is, and that's where the healing is. I mean, I say the healing, I mean, I'm talking about the, you know, I want to use the word like kind of compensating for the darkness of that time. You right. know, that, you know, we have, you know, it's, <laughs> it's tough. It's not easy. I don't know. It's not easy. Anyway. So, no. Alana, guess what? We're at the top of our hour. Yeah. Would you believe it? It was an interesting conversation. I mean, I hope that we covered the things you wanted to talk about. I, 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 like I, we I think we did. I think we did a good job okay. here. Got some, okay, got some good. good stuff. And so I'd like well, to I, thank you for being with me this week, Alana. Well, thank you for inviting me. I hope and we once move again, inspired and touch people. That's that's what I'm here for, to touch and people. And I, I guess I would say, by t- you know, my message to people would be like, you know, don't be afraid to share stories of how you fell down and got back up, because to me that's what's really inspiring, when people are willing to be honest about the times they fell down and how they got back up. You know? <laughs> I know. So once again, so I'm going anyway. to give a, get out your website again. It's beginneratlife.com. Yeah. And uh, I imagine people can contact you there if they'd like to. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Awesome. On Facebook, they can become my friend on Facebook, Alana Rubin Free. Okay. And, and um, um, yeah. great. So we will be back here next week with Elaine Lockhart to talk about numerology. And we will be looking at my chart. And so it's going to be a very scary show for me. So until then, everyone, thanks for listening. Dream big and live bigger. And we'll see you next week. Good night.